I encourage you to get a Bible and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. As you're turning to 1 Peter 1, the last time I was before you, we looked at a very basic and first principle study, and we want to do that again this morning. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, a very familiar text to us. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by traditions from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Peter affirms that we are redeemed, but then he tells us that we are not redeemed with corruptible things, but we are redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. Let's talk this morning about the precious blood of Christ. We don't talk enough about the blood of Christ. We talk about a number of things that are related to the blood of Christ. And we may imply the blood of Christ, but we don't talk enough about the blood of Christ. For example, when we talk to someone about being saved, we may talk to them about hearing and believing and repenting and being baptized, and that's correct. We haven't misled them at all, but in all of that, we ought to be talking to them at some point about the blood of Christ and that these conditions that are laid down are in order that we might receive the benefits of the blood of Christ. When we come together every first day of the week, we are to remember the sacrifice of the blood of Christ. God never wanted us to forget the blood of Christ. He wanted us not only to talk about it, he wanted us to think about it, he wanted us to remember the blood of Christ. So let's make a very simple study this morning of the blood of Christ. Let's start with this. Let's understand the Bible teaches that we are saved by the blood of Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ saves mankind. Now why was the blood necessary that we might be saved? Because sin by the nature of what sin is demands that a price or a penalty be paid. Sin is a transgression of the law, Romans 4, 15, 1 John 3 and in verse 4. So if sin is a transgression or a violation of the law, that is here is God's law and a violation of that, that demands that a penalty be paid, that a price be paid. If there is no penalty, then there is no law. Now let's illustrate that. Let's suppose you as a parent, you tell your child, do not go outside after services. That's your law. But the child goes out anyway, and you see them go out, and you see them come back in and go back out again, and they repeatedly go out, and then you go to the child and you say, well, that's okay, you're not going to be punished. I just wanted you to know there is a law that you can't go outside. Well, if there is no punishment, there is no law. There is no rule if there is no consequence. So when God gives a law and man violates the law, if there is no consequence, then there is no law. So again, let's establish the point that sin by the nature of what it is demands that a price be paid. So sin by its nature demands a penalty. Man can't pay, that is, he has nothing to pay. You say, well, yeah, he can. He can pay the penalty for sin. That's true, but he cannot pay anything so that he can clear himself. So man violates the law of God, and he did in Genesis chapter 3 at the very beginning, and thus there was a need for a redeemer, verse 15 of Genesis 3. But from that point on, man has nothing by which he can pay so that he could redeem himself or clear himself so that he doesn't pay the penalty of a burning forever in the fires of hell. Furthermore, let's understand that we can only then face the consequence. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. 
It's talking about eternal separation. Because the context says, but contrasting, the gift of God is eternal life. In contrast to eternal life, here is death. This is eternal death, eternal separation from God. All right, now get the picture. Man is in a terrible condition because he sins and he violates the law of God. That demands a penalty be paid. Man can only pay the price in the sense of the consequence. He can pay nothing to clear himself. He can't go to God and say, God, I want to be cleared of the penalty. I want to be cleared of the guilt. And here's what I have to offer you to be cleared of that. Man has nothing to pay. God has always demanded blood sacrifice since the very beginning. Why does he do that? Well, let's get our Bibles and let's trace some references now in the book of Genesis Starting in Genesis, and we'll go to some other text in the Old Testament. And let's understand that God, from the beginning, said that man had life in his blood, and animals had life in their blood. Why does God demand blood sacrifice? Because life is in the blood. Let's go to Genesis 9 and in verse 4. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Now, you could eat flesh, but you are not to eat the blood. Why? Because life, verse 4, is in the blood. Now, drop down to verse 6. That was the reason given for capital punishment. We've already seen life being in the blood is the reason you're not to eat blood. But there's another reason given, and that is another thing that's given at verse 6. Whoever shed man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed, for he's in the image of God. Now, why is it wrong, and why is it that man, when he kills another man, his life ought to be given? That's because man is in the image of God, and he had just said, verse 4, that life is in the blood. So this principle of life being in the blood is an important issue. It's an important point. That is having, that's the reason for capital punishment, and that's the reason one cannot eat blood. Well, let's go further. Let's go to another text found on the screen before you. This time, let's go to the book of Leviticus. Go to Leviticus chapter 17, and this starts at verse 1. We won't read all of this, but verse 1 starts a discussion of the sanctity of blood, the sacrifices and the killing of the animals that were to be sacrificed, and how those were to be sacrificed outside the camp, and then the blood be brought within the camp. Now I want you to drop down with me to verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. That's what I want you to see. You might underline that. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. Drop down to verse 14. Well, let's get verse 12. That no, uh, no one among you shall eat blood. Here again is why you shouldn't eat blood, because life is in the blood. Now you sacrifice and use that sacrifice of the blood, but you don't eat the blood. Why? Because life is in the blood. Now drop down to verse 14. For it is the life of all flesh, it blood, its blood sustains its life. Therefore, I said to the children of Israel, you shall not eat blood of any flesh, for it is the life of all the uh, life of all the flesh is in its blood. So repeatedly, God said life is in the blood. Let's go to one other text in the Old Testament, this time to the book of Deuteronomy. And let's go to the 12th division and look at verse 23. Deuteronomy 12 and verse 23. Only be sure that you do not eat the blood for the blood is the life. You may eat the flesh with the meat. You may not eat the flesh with the meat. So what's his point? Life again is in the blood. So repeatedly in the Old Testament, life is in the blood. So God demanded blood sacrifice for that very reason. Now Hebrews 10 and in verse 4, it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin. 
Now life is in the blood. God has demanded blood sacrifice. In the Old Testament, he demanded the blood, the blood of animals, but animal sacrifice did not take the sin away. Though it was required of God, it did not completely take sin away. I'm just trying to see that sin demanded that a price be paid. Now let's go back to the text where we started in 1 Peter chapter 1 and in verse 19. We are redeemed by the perfect sacrifice, and that is the sacrifice of the blood of Jesus Christ. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1 and in verse 18 and 19. Knowing then that you're not redeemed with corruptible things, like silver or gold, from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb, notice, without blemish and without spot. Here is the perfect blood sacrifice, the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now let's understand, we're driving at the fact that salvation comes through the blood of Christ. I know why the blood needed to be shed, a price had to be paid. God has always demanded blood sacrifice, and the perfect blood sacrifice is the sacrifice of Christ. Now let's establish we're saved by the blood. There's not a person present who doesn't already know that. But I want us to list a number of passages that describe salvation by the blood, and the word salvation will not always be used. It may be another term. So let's trace these references, though we know them and know them well. Let's start with Matthew 26 and verse 28. The blood of Christ remits our sin. In other words... The idea of remission means, and we'll look at the passages in a moment as you're turning there. The idea of remission means it's taken away. It is removed. It's taken from. And so Jesus shed his blood. Jesus said, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins, for the forgiveness of sins, for the removal of sins. So Jesus said, I shed my blood for the removal or remission of sins. Now jump over to Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 22. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. If there was no shedding of blood, if their blood wasn't shed, there would be no remission of sins. Now we could stop there and we've established our point, but let's go further. Let's turn over to Revelation 1 and in verse 5. Revelation 1, 5, same point to be made, but worded just a little bit differently. That the blood of Jesus Christ washes us from our sins. And from Christ Jesus, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. So Jesus washes us. And so here's the picture of being washed and cleansed, our sins washed away. And that's done by the blood of Jesus Christ. Well, let's go to 1 John 1 and in verse 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. Now let's footnote here. That passage is directed not to the alien sinner, though that's true, but that's directed to the child of God. After I become a child of God, there will be occasions where I do sin, verse 8, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses me from sin when I sin from time to time. And so the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us, makes us clean. Well, the Bible talks about being redeemed by the blood. Here's some parallel passages. We've already looked at the first Peter passage. So let's go to the two parallel passages, one in Ephesians chapter 1 and in verse 7. If you were to turn to the other, Colossians 1.14, it's almost identical. So I'll just read this one, Ephesians 1. But turn to either one and they're parallel and they say essentially the same thing. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. 
We have redemption through the blood of Christ, meaning by that the forgiveness of sin. But why does he use the word redeem? The word redeem means to buy back. We've been sold into sin, like a slave sold from one master to another slave. And now that we're in sin, we're bought back. A price was paid to buy us back to God. So we're redeemed by the blood of Christ. Same passage, whether you turn to Colossians 1 or Ephesians 1, same points being made. In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Now the word forgiveness is the idea of releasing and turning loose and letting go. So when you forgive another, that means you turn loose of that offense and you let it go. You don't hold on to that. So God turns loose and releases and lets go of the sin. You have committed sin, God turns loose and lets go of that. He releases that and you are forgiven of that. You are redeemed. You are washed. You're cleansed. Here's another expression. Let's go to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 and in verse 20. There is peace. Here is the idea that sin creates enmity between us and God. And we're no longer in a right relationship. We become enemies of God. And now the blood of Jesus Christ makes peace. Let's see how that works. Look at verse 20. That he might reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. How is there peace with God? Through the blood of his cross. Now let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. This is going to be a passage we'll appeal to a little bit later in our study. In Ephesians chapter 2 and in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, being at a distance, are brought near, the King James says, made nigh by the blood of Christ. So we drift far from God, we're separated from God. What the blood does is the blood brings us near, brings us nigh, brings us back close to God. These are all synonymous, just different connotations. Notice, we are sanctified by the blood. The one who drifts from God, we'll come back to this passage later in our study, counts the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified an unholy thing, and he does despite to the spirit of grace. So we are sanctified. In other words, we're made holy. We're set apart as special by the blood of Jesus Christ. There's another phrase. Let's look at Romans 5 and in verse 9. In Romans chapter 5, and notice verse 9, that he says that we are justified by the blood. Much more than having been justified by his blood, having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. Now he uses the term saved, but he uses the term justified, meaning we're considered just and right. When we were considered sinners, God takes the blood of Christ and now considers us as just and right in his eyes. No longer viewing us as sinners, but as just and right in his eyes. Let's go to the book of Hebrews. There's no book that says more about the blood of Christ than the book of Hebrews. Chapter 9, verse 14 being one of those passages. And here I'm learning that we are purged by the blood of Christ. That is, our conscience is clear. Notice verse 14. Much more then shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And so here is our conscience that's bothered with sin. The guilt of sin, in other words, is washed and cleansed and purged, taken away. How? By the blood of Jesus Christ. One more passage. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. We've already looked at Colossians 1, so let's go to Ephesians chapter 2 and look at verse 15 and 16. 
Ephesians 2, 15 and 16. We're going to see that we're reconciled. Here's the idea that we're in a right relationship with God. We went away from God and then we're coming back again. That's the idea of reconciliation. So we're reconciled by the blood of Christ. Colossians 1 makes this, but we're looking at the Ephesians account. Verse 15, having abolished through his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create himself one new man, thus making peace. Here's that peaceful relationship. That he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross. That is, through what was done on the cross, through the blood that was shed, Colossians 1.20, we have salvation. Now, all of these are different expressions of saying we're saved by the blood. We're bought back, we're redeemed, we're cleansed, we're made near, made peace, we're justified, we're reconciled, we're saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, let's go a step further. And let's notice that the blood had to be offered. In other words, had Jesus died and shed his blood on the cross and then stayed in the tomb and never been raised from the dead, we could not be saved. He said, but he died for our sins. He did, but that blood had to be offered. You remember in the Old Testament that if you're studying just a cursory reading of the Old Testament, you would understand this principle, and we understand it from the book of Hebrews as well, that the priest went and offered the uh, a sacrifice, killed the animal, and then took the blood and went into the most holy place and offered that blood before God. So the parallel is that Jesus goes into the most holy place offering that blood. So the blood had to be offered. You see, as our high priest, he is our high priest, he offers that blood in heaven. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 9 and in verse 12. Hebrews 9 and 12 says, Not with the blood of goats and of calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place, once for all having obtained eternal redemption. Now, we're not going to go through the whole context showing all of the parallel. But the, the priest of the, the high priest in the old covenant, that he sacrificed the animal and then took the blood and went into the most holy place. Jesus, being our high priest by parallel, takes that blood and he offers it in heaven on our behalf. He shed his blood, but then he has to offer symbolically that blood before the throne of God. Well, let's go further. Look at verse 24 of the same context. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands. He's not going into a literal, literal tabernacle. Which are copies of the true, but has entered heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. That is, when Jesus was raised from the dead, he takes his blood and offers it before the throne of God. So he shed his blood, that's true, but his blood had to be offered. That's why his resurrection is so important. So let's go to the book of Romans now and notice that we're saved by his life. And I put in parentheses his resurrected life. Some think that we're saved by his life in the sense that Jesus lived a perfect life and then God takes that perfect life and vicariously transfers that to our account. That's Calvinistic in its concept. And they call that imputed righteousness. That's not found anywhere in the scriptures. That is that concept of the vicarious imputation of the righteousness of Christ. That's not how we're saved by the life. Let's go to Romans chapter 4 and in verse 25. The apostle Paul says, who was delivered up because of our offenses. In other words, he was crucified in order to pay the price for our sins. And was raised because of our justification. You see, his Death, his being delivered up, is important to our salvation, but so was his resurrection important to our salvation. It doesn't just declare proof of who he was, 
But had he stayed in the tomb, there would have been no offering of the blood. So he was delivered up, that is, he was crucified because of our sin, but he was raised because of our justification. Now, in the same opening, if you have a print Bible, or maybe even on your electronic Bible, probably at the same opening, or real close, you can find chapter 5 and in verse 10. If you're in a print Bible, you might draw a line from 425 to 510. And here's why. The text says we shall be saved by his life. And what's that talking about? Again, that's not because he lived a perfect life. God takes his perfection and brings it over here and puts it on my account so that now I'm perfect and God doesn't see my sin anymore. That's not taught in the Bible anywhere. You won't find that anywhere, not in Romans 4 or any other text. But what I do find in the context of that, that he talks about him being raised for our justification. This is his resurrected life, just mentioned previously in chapter 4 and verse 25. So the sense in which I'm saved by his life, he was raised from the dead, and therefore he takes that blood and he offers it before the throne of God. Now what have I seen so far? I've seen at least three areas in which we are saved by the blood of Christ. It saves mankind. He shed his blood, and there was the perfect blood sacrifice. We see numerous descriptions of salvation by the blood, and then we see the blood was offered before the throne of God. Now let's consider something else. Secondly, let's understand that the blood of Jesus Christ, the precious blood of Christ, is for everybody. Now, there's not a person present who doesn't already know that. But being reminded of the fact that the blood was for every man, that does a couple of things. One is it refutes the concept that he only died for some, the elect, a Calvinistic thought. But more importantly, what it does is encourages every one of us, he died for me. It doesn't matter who I am, doesn't matter how lowly I may feel, how great I may feel, how important I may be, how rich or how poor he died for me, and he died for you, he died for every single one of us. Let's see a few passages that will help us with that. Let's start with Hebrews 2 and in verse 9. By the grace of God, he tasted death for every man. And so you look at that and you say, well, well, yeah, it refutes a, a false concept. So let's get that out of the way. It refutes the Calvinistic thought of a limited atonement. Then he only died for some. But putting that aside, that's some encouragement that he died for me. Doesn't matter who you are. He tasted death for every man. He died for you. Here's another passage. Makes the same point. Look at 1 John chapter 2 verses 1 and 2. Turn to 1 John chapter 2. And look at verses 1 and 2. The text says... My little children, these things are right to you, that you might not sin. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the perpetuation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. I'm part of the whole world, and so are you part of the whole world. So he is the sacrifice and the perpetuation for the whole world. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and in verse 14. I'm going to learn from this text that he died for all mankind. But going back to this Calvinistic thought just for a moment, they tell us that all mankind is dead in sin. What this passage is going to tell me, he died for as many as are dead in sin. However many are dead in sin, their answer is, well, everybody's dead in sin. All right, then he died for every man. Look at verse 14. For the love of Christ compels us because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. He died for as many as are dead. How many are dead? All men are dead. Then he died for all men. 
Well, if he died for some, then only some are dead. But if all men die in sin, then he died for every single one. Look at Luke chapter 19 and in verse 10. In the story of Zacchaeus, Jesus Christ came to seek and to save those that are lost. So when one recognizes, you know what, there's sin in my life and I'm lost, then Jesus died for you. Well, here's something else. John chapter 1 and verse 29. When Jesus was seen, the statement was made, Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. Not just some sin, but the sin of the world. Now we have compounding evidence, and let's add one more. Let's go to Romans chapter 2 and verse 11. God is not a respecter of persons. God does not show partiality, the new King James says. So in other words, if he died for one, but he didn't die for somebody else. If Jesus died for you, but he didn't die for me, he's showing partiality. He's showing respecter of persons. If he only died for a few, but not the majority, he's a respecter of persons. So from all of those passages, I'm learning that the blood was shed for every single man. But let's go further. Jesus shed his blood for those under the Old Testament as well as those under the New. How so? <clears throat> let's look at a couple of passages. Let's go to Romans chapter 3 and in verse 20. Five. Romans chapter 3 and 25. He demonstrated through his sacrifice that God was just in forgiving them. Let's get the passage and then we'll get an explanation of that. <clears throat> Whom God set forth as a perpetuation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. What's he talking about? Well, under the old covenant, people could be forgiven, not on the basis of the sacrifice of bulls and goats. Their sins were remembered every year. It wasn't completely forgiven. So on what basis could you have great Old Testament saints, great Old Testament people of God, listed in Hebrews 11 as being those who would enter the gates of heaven because their sins had been forgiven? Well, they weren't forgiven by the blood of bulls and goats. They were forgiven on the basis of a coming sacrifice. Now let's go back and read that again. But before we do, let's give an illustration of that. You, if you've ever bought anything on credit, you understand this principle. If you go down to the store and you say, I want to buy this appliance, but I don't have money. And you say, I still want the appliance. And they say, well, it's 90 days same as cash. So you take the appliance, you take the refrigerator home, you can take it today, and then you can come back within 90 days and you pay the money, and that shows that you were justified in taking it home. See, if you take it without paying, that's called stealing. But you took it home. What right did you have to take it and to receive it? Because there's coming a payment that you're going to make. Now, when you make that payment, that shows you were fair and just and right in having taken that home early. Now, God can forgive one on the basis of a coming sacrifice, and that's what he did. Let's read the passage again at verse 25. God, who, uh, whom God, speaking of Christ, set forth as a perpetuation through his blood, through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. That his people under the old covenant, God had forgiven, not through the blood of bulls and goats, that wouldn't do it, but on the coming of the on the basis of the coming sacrifice. Let's notice another passage. Makes the same point. Let's go to the book of Hebrews, this time chapter 9. We've appealed to chapter 9 several times. Let's go to verse 15. Hebrews 9 and verse 15. 
His blood was for the redemption of those under the first covenant. Same thing we saw in Romans 3.25. Look at verse 15. For this reason he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant. I thought the redemption was for us. It is. For the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. So how can Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and those great Old Testament characters have any hope of heaven? It was on the basis of a coming sacrifice. So Jesus shed his blood, not only for those on our side of the cross, but for those on the previous side of the cross as well. These two passages so teach. But now let's talk about a third principle about the blood. We need to understand the blood must be applied. Jesus shed his blood for all, that's true. But we need to establish not all are saved. And if I were in a home Bible study and wanted to focus on the blood, I think I would focus on the fact that first of all, all men have, can, can benefit from the blood of Christ. Jesus shed his blood for all men, but not all men are saved. Now we've got a dilemma to work through. He shed his blood for all men, but not all men are saved. Let's establish that fact. In Matthew chapter 7, 13 and 14, you know this passage well. Let's turn there and read it together. This is in the Sermon on the Mount in what we might refer to as the invitation section of the Sermon on the Mount. And as Jesus is winding his sermon down, he said, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. In other words, many will be lost. But narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way that leads to life, that is salvation, and there are few who find it. All right, what did I learn? I'm learning that only a few are going to be saved. Well, same chapter now, verse 21, not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, not everybody's going to be saved. Not even all religious people are going to be saved. Not even all believers are going to be saved. So not everybody's going to be saved. That's all I'm trying to see. Let's go to one more passage. Revelation 21 and verse 8. If you can't quote any section of that except all liars will have their part in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, you know that much of it? Or you know enough to make this point. And that is that many are going to be in the lake of fire because there are many liars in the world, aren't they? So I'm learning that there are many people that are going to be lost in the lake of fire that burns with brimstone. So what we've established is that Jesus died for everybody, but not everybody's going to be saved. So we've got to work through that. In other words, we need to understand that the blood has to be applied. Just because the blood was shed for you doesn't mean you're going to benefit from the blood. The blood has to be applied to me. So let's open our Bibles to the book of Ephesians, if you will. Let's go to the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians talks about the blood of Christ multiple times. It may talk about it in the sense of the cross. It may mention the blood specifically. But it does talk about the blood of Christ. Let's go to chapter 1 and look at verse 7. Ephesians 1 and verse 7. I want us to understand sal where salvation is. Salvation is in Christ. Now notice in Ephesians chapter 1. Here's what we're going to see. Let's go to the screen and then we'll come back to our text. On the one side we're going to see what takes place. We're going to see in the middle where it takes place. And over here we're going to see how it takes place. We're talking about being saved by the blood. But where? It's in Christ. And we know this, but let's see where the passages identify this. Look at chapter 1 verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. All right, what do we see? In him 
We have redemption through his blood. Here's what takes place, being redeemed. Where? In him, that is in Christ, how? By the blood. All right, let's go to another passage, chapter 2. Drop down now, scroll down to chapter 2 and in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off are made near by the blood of Christ. All right, you who once were far off, for what? You're made near, where? In Christ. How? By the blood. What takes place? Where it takes place? How it takes place. Drop down three verses now. Look at verse 16. Look at verse 16. That he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross. What's taking place? Reconciliation. That's the same thing as being made near or being redeemed. Where? It's in the one body. That's the same as being in Christ or being in him. How? By the cross. That's where the blood was shed. So here's what I'm learning. We are saved in Christ by the blood. You say, well, I already know the, the, how we get into Christ. But your friend may not know that, that you're talking to. They need to know that you're saved where in the one body and in, in Christ by the blood. How do I get into Christ? Well, Romans or Galatians 3.27 says we're baptized into Christ. Now, that's when I contact the blood. 1 Corinthians 12.13 says, for by one spirit are we all baptized into one body. So that same baptism that puts me into Christ is the same baptism that puts me into the one body. And when I'm in the one body, that's where I'm saved or redeemed or reconciled by the blood or by the cross of Christ. The blood must be applied. I said we'd come back to a passage we mentioned earlier. So let's go to Romans 1 and in verse 5. Let us understand the blood is the what, the obedience is the when. Quite often someone says, well, here is a condition of salvation you're mentioning, and if we're saved by that somehow, then that means we're not saved by the blood of Christ. The Bible says we're saved by the blood, therefore it can't be by repentance. We're saved by the blood, therefore it's not by baptism. The blood is the what that saves us. Baptism or any other condition is merely the when. Let's go back to Romans 1. He washed us and cleansed us from our sins in his own blood. How are we saved? By the blood of Christ. That's what saves me. But the Bible also says, arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Is it saying now we have a contradiction? One passage says you're washed by the blood and another one says you're washed in baptism. No, what these passages are showing, the washing, the blood is what washes us. The baptism is merely when the blood washes. Now, we've already appealed to Matthew 26 and verse 28. Jesus shed his blood for the remission of sins, for the removal, the taking away of sins. Same expression now that's used there is used over here in Acts 2.38 of baptism, that you are baptized for the remission of sins. Contradiction? Not at all. One is emphasizing what saves. The other is emphasizing when we are saved by the blood of Christ. The blood must be applied. But let's consider something else. Let us consider that we have been purchased by the blood. Or another way of looking at that, the blood is the price that purchased the church. Now let's open our Bibles to a passage in Acts chapter 20. Paul is talking to the elders of the church at Ephesus. And he tells them to take heed to themselves and to all the flock. And notice what he says about the flock. Take heed to yourselves and all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God. Now notice the phrase, 
which he purchased with his own blood. Now what am I learning from that? The blood of Christ is the price that was paid for the church. Now what do I conclude from that? He shed his blood so there would be a church. There wouldn't be a church. You wouldn't be in the church were it not for the blood. If the church and the saved are one and the same, Acts 2, then, and they are, then if you're saved by the blood, that was the price that was paid that there might be a church. It shows the value that he placed upon the church. Now listen to this carefully. Any reflection on the church is a reflection on the blood. What's being said in our own day and time by our own brethren about the church is so unimportant, but Christ is really important. And it's true, Christ is important. But they minimize the, the impact and they minimize the importance of the church. What we need to preach is the man and not the plan. We need to preach Christ and not the church. Church is the people. We don't need to preach about the church. We need to preach about Christ. Give emphasis to Christ and not the church. All right? When I minimize the church, I'm minimizing the blood of Christ because that's the price it was paid for the church. Tell me some value that Christ placed upon the church when that's the price that he paid that there might be a New Testament church. But let's go further. Let us understand we have been purchased. We've been bought. And when you've been purchased, now you have new ownership. We're redeemed. The price has been paid, in other words. And the price that was paid was the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That's where we started. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 6 and in verse 19. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and start at verse 19 and 20. Do you not know that the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit which is in you, which you have from God, and you're not your own? In other words, you don't own yourself. Paul, why do you say that? For you're bought with a price. Now, I know what that price was from Acts 20. You're bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. So we've been purchased. So when we live a life that is... Unlike the people that belong to God, we're belittling the value of the blood. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 9. I said we'd come back to that. I want to make that statement again. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10 and in verse 29 and see if that's not the point being made in Hebrews 10, 29. Trying to drive home the point that we are purchased by the blood. We've been purchased and we've been bought. So when I live a life that's unfit for a person that belongs to God... I'm living the kind of life that would not harmonize with the statement, I've been bought and I belong to God, I'm His. When I live that kind of life, then I am belittling the value of the blood of Christ. Go to Hebrews 10, 29, see if that's not the point. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose shall he be thought worthy? Who's he talking about? The one who sins willfully, verse 26, after he's received the knowledge of the truth. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose he shall be thought worthy who has trampled the foot, the Son of God underfoot, are you reading with me? And counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the Spirit of grace. See, when he sins willfully, he's taken the blood that was shed for him to purchase the price and treated it like a common thing to be trampled over. It's worthless. When I live a life that's unfit for a child of God, we're belittling the value. Now let's mention one other thing and the lesson is yours. We're still talking about the blood of Christ, the blood dedicated the new covenant, the new testament. There wouldn't be a church were it not for the blood. There wouldn't be a new testament were it not for the blood. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 9. 
As I said, Hebrews chapter, all the chapters for that matter, particularly starting in chapter 9 and forward, 7, 8, and 9. There's great emphasis given to the blood in the book of Hebrews. And look at chapter 9 and in verse 15. Christ is the mediator of the new covenant by his death. And for this reason, he is a mediator of the new covenant by means of death. That's where he shed his blood. For the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant. We saw that just a moment ago. Those who recall may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Now let's look at verse 16 and 17 now. He is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death. Now what does that mean? Well, look at verses 16 and 17. Next two verses, the New Testament is the last will and testament that becomes effective on his death. So look at verse 16. For where there is a testament, there must of necessity be the death of the testator. Now stop there and we'll come back and get the next verse. Anytime someone writes a last will and testament and they sign it, it is of no value at all until they die. That's what he's saying. Now verse 17. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while they live. All right, when Jesus writes his last will and testament, in other words, the New Testament, the New Covenant, as long as he's living, it's not in force. But when he died and shed his blood, what happens? It becomes law. And now we have a new covenant. But we're not through. Look at the next three verses. Verse 15 had said he's the mediator of the new covenant by means of death. Verse 16 and 17 said the New Testament, his last will and testament, becomes effective at his death. Verses 18, 19, and 20 says both the old covenant and the new covenant were dedicated by blood, but the new covenant was dedicated by the blood of Christ. Let's get that. Verse 18. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. It wasn't the blood of Christ, but it was blood, all right. Look at verse 19. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. So when the Old Testament was dedicated, it was dedicated with the blood of animals, he said. Now verse 22. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with the blood, and without the shedding of blood is no remission. Now, what am I learning from that? I'm learning that the New Testament was dedicated by the blood of Christ. In other words, we don't have the church without the blood, and we don't have the new covenant without the blood. It is of useless and of no value were it not for the blood of Jesus Christ. So what have we seen in our simple study today about the blood of Jesus Christ? We need to be reminded about the blood. We need to think about the blood. We need to reflect on the blood of Christ. And we're about to partake of the Lord's Supper, and it's an occasion to think back about the shedding of his blood. What's that all about? Well, we're saved by his blood. He shed it for everyone. It must be applied that I might benefit by the blood. Because that blood was shed, we have a church. And because that blood was shed, we have the new covenant. We have the New Testament. Without the blood, none of that means anything. The blood of Christ should be special and very precious, and thus it's called the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Have you benefited from the blood or by the blood? If you're not a Christian, you haven't benefited through the blood of Jesus Christ. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism that you might have the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing?